0: hello and welcome to the do one better podcast in philanthropy sustainability and social entrepreneurship i'm your host alberto ligi from london please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share wildly with others it makes a huge difference indeed we have some amazing guests coming up for you in the next few weeks next week we have paul pullman and we also have david lynch and david miliband and many other fascinating folks lined up just for you So please do click that subscribe button and stay up to date on what's going on here. So today we are talking about global hunger and malnutrition, which is UN Sustainable Development Goal 2. And the sobering statistic for you is that one in three people on our planet is malnourished this very moment. So we're joined today by Lawrence Haddad, who is the executive director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or GAIN. They are a Swiss-based foundation launched at the UN in 2002 And they focus on tackling human suffering due to malnutrition. And we're going to be asking some very important questions. What can we do about global hunger? Does anyone need to die from hunger in this day and age? And should we all embrace a vegetarian lifestyle, or is there room for eating beef, chicken, fish? And what about childhood stunting and its impact on long term economic development? So we're going to be covering all of these topics, but before we do, a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI who are a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication. Now, since today we are talking about malnutrition and global hunger, I'd like to highlight a recent piece of research that the folks at Quilt AI have done with the World Bank, specifically the World Bank's embed unit, who apply behavioral science to end poverty and enhance equity. Now, they set out to understand whether social media could be used to get fathers motivated and active in ensuring their children's nutrition. Now, to find out more, simply search for a blog post on the World Bank's website titled, Leveraging Artificial Intelligence to Reach Fathers and Support Child Nutrition in India During COVID-19. That's a good starting point for you to get acquainted with that research. So many thanks to our sponsors, and indeed, many thanks to Lawrence Haddad, who joins us today. Lawrence, it is such a pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about GAIN. What is the organization all about?
1: So um, the, ga- the organization is a nonprofit, has offices in 14 different countries in the world. The headquarters is in... Geneva, but we have five offices in Africa, four in Asia, and the organization is all about how do we make nutritious food, uh, that's food that is rich in proteins and micronutrients and antioxidants, how do we make that food available, uh, affordable, and, and desirable, actually, as well, to especially to low-income uh, families. We uh, there is a stat that came out uh, just about six months ago from the UN, mm-hmm. showing that three billion people worldwide cannot afford a healthy diet. That's extraordinary. Um, you know, we developed our strategy and our mission before that stat came out, but it's a sort of a validation of what we're trying to do. We're trying to make fruits, vegetables, fish, eggs, dairy, pulses, fortified grains. Trying to make those available to people at a lower income. At the moment, most of the people in Africa and South Asia, which is primarily where we work, um, they would have to spend 50% of their income to buy five fruits and vegetables a day. Right. That you know, fruits and vegetables a day is a regular recommendation for the UK, the US, Europe, North America, and, and everywhere actually in the world. But they would have to spend half their income just to do that for every person, five fruits and vegetables a day. It's outrageous. So We work really hard to try and change that. We work with farmers, we work with the food wholesalers, the processors, the retailers, the transport people, the storage people, and with consumer groups, and with governments to change the policy environment. So we work on the demand side, how do we make people aware of these foods, their importance, their availability, how do we make them exciting and desirable and tasty? We work with the suppliers, the small and medium enterprises, and the smallholder farmers who are the backbone of the food systems in low-income countries. How do we get them the support they need? And then we work with governments to say, look, your policy environment, you have lots of choices. You can Mm -hmm. develop a positive incentive for this and a negative incentive for that. And very often, your policies are inadvertently penalizing businesses that are trying to do good things for nutrition. So. That's that's what we do. We do programs. We um, have about 250 staff around the world. We have thousands of partners all over the world, and we work to develop and deliver programs that help people and, and small businesses. And then we do a lot of policy work to shape the policy environment to make sure that the powerful uh, governments and the powerful donors and the powerful businesses are paying more attention to nutrition. Uh, And we work with communities to to help them, you know, hold the powerful to account.
0: Yeah, fascinating. By the way, you you, you mentioned, you know, 50% of someone's income having to Mm. be deployed in order to have healthy food. But even here in London, in the UK, if you want to eat a healthy diet, you want to have some salads and fruit and vegetables, uh, it's actually... Not that straightforward. It's quite. It can be quite pricey. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can buy. You're quite right. You can buy a healthy food uh, that is affordable in in Europe and North America, but you have to work pretty hard. It's not very convenient. You have to look hard for it. You have to spend a lot of time preparing it. You have to make it tasty
0: and desirable. What's What's going on today uh, in terms of our global population? Does anybody? If, if we really put our minds to it, and if we're looking at the scarcity of resources or what resources are available, what sort of land is available and, and food production, does anybody really need to go hungry on this planet today?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, we we grow enough food for everybody to avoid hunger, but the main problem is that people don't have enough income to, to buy the food. They don't have the income, or, or maybe the food is not available in the markets that they work in. That they, they shop in or, or buy in. You know, there are a number of myths out there that I'd really love to just dispel uh, yeah. for, your, for your listeners. The first one is that Africa, and you know, Africa is where most hunger is. The basic number is 690 million people are hungry. You know, 80, 70, 80% of that is in, is in Africa. The myth is that Africa doesn't produce its own food. It does. It produces 90% of its food. It only imports ten percent of its food, but the, the main problem is that that agriculture is not productive enough. You know, agriculture is about producing food, but it's also about producing income, mm-hmm. and it's not producing enough food, or it's not, and it's not producing enough income. When farmers generate surplus income, when they produce enough food to meet their own family's need, and they can sell the surplus in the market, they generate income. That income can then be used to buy. Uh, non-foods from rural enterprises in their in their own neighbourhoods and communities, and that then stimulates the the rural enterprises to grow and buy more food from the farmers, and so you set up this really powerful synergy between the two, and then that releases labour, which can then go into the urban areas, and they can you know set up businesses, and that's how you generate. This, this engine of growth. But that's not happening in Africa. Now, you asked me about how much would it cost to, to change that dynamic. Yeah. A report just came out uh, six months ago. It's called the Sarah's 2030 report. And it said, you know, what do we need to do to get the hunger numbers from 690 down to less than 200 million in 2030? That's the SDG. Uh, target date. Six, 690 million. 690 to 2 million. 690, 690 million to 200 million. Mm-hmm. So 200 million is still 2.5% of the population, but it's a lot different to 690. And if we keep going the same course we're going on now, the estimates are we'll get to 840 million by 2030. So the numbers are actually going up uh, first time in a very long time. So we need to stop them going up and then we need to get them down. Now, how much would that cost? The estimates are that it would cost an extra $33 billion per year until 2030. So 33 an extra $33 billion per year uh, until 2030. Now, that's a lot of money. But you know, look at look at the amounts of money that are being put into relief packages to 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 deal with COVID right now. Um, I'm not saying $33 billion is not is not a lot of money, but think about this. The 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 businesses' profits, business profits are five trillion dollars a year. Um, so one of the things I'm doing, uh, Alberto, is I'm the chair of the action track for the UN Food Systems Summit that's coming up in 2021 in September of this year. That has five action tracks: uh, one on climate, one on biodiversity, one on livelihoods, and one on resilience. And the one I'm leading is the one on nutritious food, mm-hmm. and Working, we're trying to set up a, a 2030 fund, which is 0.2 percent, 0.2030 percent of business profits uh, would generate ten billion dollars a year. So, as part of that summit, we're we're trying to get business leaders to say, "Look, follow the follow the example of Amazon Smile." I don't know if your listeners have heard of Amazon Smile, but it's a it's um it's a a charity matching donation that Amazon puts in a certain matches a certain small percentage of a purchase that customers make on Amazon's. Well. And you know, I, I kind of thought this was a, I thought this was a bit of a gimmick actually when I first heard about it a couple of years ago. But I, I checked the numbers recently, and they've generated one hundred eighty million dollars, one hundred eighty million pounds, which is kind of two hundred twenty million dollars in revenue for charities. Um so we're now thinking well if we can get 20 or 30 or 40 companies to do something similar we're a third of the way to to meeting that that target of 33 billion dollars a year if we can get governments to kick in 15 donors to kick in 10 billion and businesses to kick in 10 billion wow we can look back in 2030 and say we we were part of an effort that got hunger numbers down to less than 200 million by 2030 that's not quite zero hunger, but it's getting close. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two hundred million mm-hmm. out of uh, eight hundred, eight, eight or nine billion—that's getting close. Um, so that's just an example of you know, it, we we talk about political will, and we talk about we can grow enough food. We but we can end hunger. I'm I'm a I'm totally convinced of that. We can end hunger in our lifetimes. We know what to do. We know how much it's going to cost. Uh, we just have to build the commitment, and that means citizens putting pressure, people like you and me, and others, people from everyday walks of life, putting pressure on members of parliament, uh, congress, congress people, uh, via the media, uh, putting pressure on our local administrators, our school administrators. You, you name it. Anyone who's in a position uh, of, of power or influence. Even at, even at the most basic community level, they can make a difference. So that's um, a rather long-winded answer to your question, Alberto, but I hope I'm getting across the, the optimism I have, uh, and I'm hoping I'm getting across the idea that it's based in a reality of we know what to do, we know how much it costs, and it's eminently fundraisable
0: to, to raise that money. Yeah, and, and it's great to see the optimism. The, the numbers are sobering. Uh, 2030 is really around the corner. So it's not that far away. You, you, you're mentioning a little bit about the policymakers, members of parliament, and so forth. And earlier, you touched on corporate profits and profitability and all of this. Let me ask you, because I remember listening to Paul Polman, uh, who used to head up Unilever. Uh, and he spoke so passionately about the sustainable development goals and what we as a planet need to do. And business is front and center. So in other words, you know, philanthropy, fine uh policy fine but actually if we don't somehow get the corporate Mm -hmm. side of things right it's just not going to happen and that's ultimately how we might be able to have something that is sustainable for the long term if we get the corporate side just right tell me a little bit about your engagement with the the corporate world how are things playing out how do you see stakeholders uh, positioning themselves and and what's your take on the whole thing
1: yeah i mean i should say first of all gain doesn't take any money from corporates except for unilever we take uh we 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 work with unilever and they they help fund a workforce program for nutrition so their workers and workers they work within value chains in africa and asia um, and we develop a program for people who work with them and for them to improve their nutrition but that's the only corporate uh, funding we accept. Um, we've got a pretty strict rule about that because we don't want to be, we don't want to be seen to be having a conflict of interest and we don't want to have a conflict of interest. We want to be able to speak truth to power. Um, now I, I spend a lot of time talking to big corporations and small and medium enterprises, but the big corporations, um, there are, you know I, first of all, I spend a lot of time countering the idea that after graduation from university, all the good people went into public sector and all the bad people went into the private sector. That's not the case. Um, I then spend a lot of time talking to businesses saying, "Come on, guys, you're doing this, but it's not really helping. It's just making you look good. Uh, there are some organizations that really have embraced uh, purposefulness, whether it's environment, sustainability, Health or equity issues—they have—and you know, Unilever is a prime example of that. the the number of The number of others I can talk about is a short is a very short list. So I spend a lot of time uh, with them, saying, "Let's convert all the energy that you put in to making the world think you're doing a great job on these environment and health issues into actually doing something that is really going to have a big impact." And I spend time convincing them. You know, you have to convince them on the economic merits. So there are three ways in which I try to do that. One, I say, look, you'll get a massive halo effect from from doing something that's meaningful. Um, Amazon Prime, it it has generated a lot of goodwill for Amazon. This this thing, this program, um, Zoom, Zoom, Netflix, and uh, well, Zoom and Netflix and Amazon have been the three big beneficiaries of. Of the COVID nineteen lockdowns, I think in the corporate world, so I'm reaching out to Zoom, and I haven't had a response yet. Zoom colleagues, uh, to say why don't you Zoom? Why don't you set up a Zoom out hunger campaign where you you emulate what Amazon is doing and um, contribute a, a, a very small portion of your revenue or profits to ending hunger? You could do it. Um, I, the way I so that's that's a halo effect. The second thing is that companies that have a purpose and a stated purpose a social purpose they it, the the empirical evidence is very strong they attract employees that are more motivated more loyal more productive and are willing to work for lower wages actually so there's a very strong business case from for businesses and this is especially the case for young employees and uh, employees in north america and europe especially and the third bus- the third element to the business case is if you run some kind of corporate social responsibility, the empirical evidence from S and P 500 companies is that yes, this will eat into your profits in the first two or three years. That's the empirical evidence. But in year four, you begin to turn the corner, and in year five, you're turning a net profit from having a corporate social responsibility. This is in your bottom line. You know your returns on assets, hard numbers. You're improving, and that this very sophisticated. Uh, econometric analyses of S&- s&p 500 experiences over the last uh, 6 years showing you begin to turn a net profit after 5 years so if you're going to do this do it for the do it for the medium term you're not going to get short term benefits in in terms of your bottom line you might get some short term halo benefits and you will get some short term employee benefits but that will take time to translate through to the bottom line but the other the other thing i keep telling businesses is this genie is, you can't put it back in the bottle. More and more people are going to be saying, where does my food come from? How was it produced? Or did, it, did, it, did it add to the livelihoods of the people that produced it? Was it fair? Is it safe? And is it healthy? Um, and more, this is not going away. Incomes are going up. And as, as incomes go up all over the world, the demand for for this will go up. So, you know, smart businesses are at the forefront of this. They're the pioneers. The laggards are the ones I think that are, uh, are going
0: to lose out. And the um, and the connection between food, food production, food security, and climate, climate change, climate crisis, these things are deeply interconnected.
1: Deeply. And one of the beauties of this Food system Summit is that it brings together these five different communities that have so much in common. You know, food systems uh, are the unlock the key to these five areas you know healthy food uh climate emissions food systems are responsible for 30 percent of climate emissions worldwide Uh, food systems are very vital to uh land use biodiversity uh water use energy use and they're critical for jobs they generate you know hundreds of millions of jobs not enough jobs but hundreds of millions of jobs what can we do to make sure those jobs are decent jobs are living wages and of course you know we have to make sure that the food systems we operate uh, are not just uh, exploiting uh, the, the present that they're 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 enabling us to leave something for the next generation that is at least as valuable if not more valuable in terms of natural capital and natural assets so Food systems are absolutely vital for, for climate emissions. We, but too often you'll see, um, Alberta, you'll see the, the climate discussions descend into a binary discussion. Should we eat uh, meat or not eat meat? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really an unhelpful binary discussion. It, it depends on where you live in the world. It depends on your context. If you're a high-income consumer living in a rich country... You're probably eating too much animal source food. You should probably decrease it for your own health. Um, it will help the climate, but the animal source food production systems in rich countries are very efficient. In a low income setting, in a low income country, you're probably going to want to eat more animal source foods. You're probably eating three, if you're lucky, three meals a day that are essentially porridge. Um, you know just rice, maybe with a little bit of fish sauce, if you're lucky and vegetables. you need to eat more animal source foods, especially if you are a young person, a young very young child or an adolescent who have very high growth requirements, very you know they they need tons of per kilogram their their nutrient needs are dozens of times more than you you or me. So they need animal source foods because they're great sources of protein but also bioavailable vitamins and minerals. Um, but if, you, if you're producing animal source foods in a low-income setting, your, your production systems are hopelessly uh, inefficient. You know, your herd size is probably 10 times what it is in North America producing the same number of foods for your population. So, you know, different parts of the world can do different things to improve health and improve greenhouse gas, reduce greenhouse gas
0: emissions. Fascinating. You mentioned about if you're lucky, you're having three bowls of porridge or, or rice. I think um, worth pointing out for listeners who are really keen on making an impact with their with their giving or their engagement is that addressing the issue of malnutrition isn't just about alleviating somebody's hunger, but if you're looking at malnutrition leading to stunting in in early childhood development, and those individuals who are stunted, those children who are stunted today, will not achieve their full intellectual potential as adults. They will develop in a suboptimal intellectual uh, capacity later on. You're essentially building in and baking in suboptimal economic performance for a country over the long term. And and uh, and what does that mean? And so I think uh, I think that's just worth hi- highlighting.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Alberto. I'm an economist. I started out as an economist, and uh, you know, I spent a lot of my early career, really, or my mid-career, early careers, estimating those you know, those estimates. What if what what is the economic cost of stunting for the individual, the family, and the, and the nation? And those numbers are they're 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 astonishingly big numbers. And it's I, you know, I like to think of it. Uh, well, I don't like to think of it, but one way, one helpful way of thinking about it is. Um, you know, any of your listeners uh, are gardeners. When you see a young sapling or young shoot come up out of the ground, and there's a frost, and that that just kills it off right, right there and then. And that's what malnutrition is. It's like a it's like a frost that's killing off um, this burgeoning uh, cognitive system, this brain development, this immune system, these muscles and bones. It is literally disfiguring uh, children and uh literally changing the shape of their brains and their neural connections and it's it's terribly damaging and it's not you're exactly right it's not just about calories it's about vitamins and minerals and proteins and it's actually not just about food it's also about healthy good sanitation good water and good healthcare so um and that that one in 3 number that you mentioned at the beginning alberto is about is about it's malnutrition right mal means bad nutrition, poor nutrition. It's about uh, kids not getting enough food to eat, kids and adults not getting enough food to eat, that's hunger. Not getting enough of the right foods to eat, that's this micronutrient malnutrition we call hidden hunger. Bellies are full, but it's not it's not doing it for the for brain development and immune system development. And then and then the third type is people eating too much of the wrong types of food. You know, too much Highly processed foods rich in trans fats, salts, sugars. That's, that's causing a massive obesity, diabetes, hypertension problem. That's when you, when you scrunch all those different types of malnutrition together, that's when you get the one in three number. It's, you know, we used to think of in the, before we had the SDGs, which is sustainable development goals, we had the millennium development goals. And the Millennium Development Goals was, you know, we, we, we've got all the solutions in the rich countries and you've got all the problems in the poor countries. We can help you. Now, the Sustainable Development Goal era is, you know, everyone's got problems and and, and the solutions can come from everywhere and we have to work together to make them. So every country in the world is, is plagued with malnutrition. In the US, it's, it's obesity rates that are 30% and it's extraordinary. UK, it's the same. Um, This is going to take an enormous toll on our health systems. Our food systems are killing our health systems and they're killing our environmental systems. So, you know, everything's connected.
0: Mm. Now tell me, Gain was uh, founded in 2002. So you're coming up to your 20th anniversary, uh, founded at the UN. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you engage with governments? You alluded to it a little bit earlier. Uh, Let's put the corporate uh, angle aside and tell me a little bit about engaging with, with governments whether that's in the Global North, Global South, whatever platforms?
1: I mean, we take, up, we take the word alliance in our title very seriously. And so we're always trying to connect governments and businesses, governments, civil society and businesses, governments, civil society, businesses and researchers. And we're trying to form alliances because individually, none of us can really make change happen individually. There are things we can do that make a difference, but powerful when we do it together And we're always trying to figure out how do we make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So in the nine countries that we have programs operating in, and I can run through them, it's it's Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, Mozambique, and Tanzania in Africa. And in uh, Asia, it's the big ones. It's Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, and Indonesia. And in those countries, we have offices and we have very close relationship with government. If you don't, have close relationship with government, you can't get anything done. Uh, It's the right thing to do, it's respectful, it's 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 reflecting, you know, in most cases, the will of the people. Uh, But it's also the smart thing to do because you you can't get anything done without governments. But governments very often need a lot of support. They've got a lot of issues they're trying to deal with. They're usually underfunded and under resourced and they need support. So we try to connect them with the UN agencies, with Uh, with businesses uh, and uh, you know so for example um, in Indonesia we developed a and working with a number of uh, civil society organizations we developed a new way of of animating communities around nutrition Um, most of the most of the uh, activities to try to get mothers uh, excited and motivated to Do more for their kids and inform. We don't have to motivate them, but we have to inform them and, and mobilize them collectively. I centered around, you know, you should do this because it's good for your child. And we said, working with a number of partners in, in Indonesia, we said, <coughs> look, you've got, to, you've got to get more emotion into this. You, this, this is too, your, your thinking is too left brain, it's too logical, it's too sequential, it's too evidence based. Yes, it needs. We need to be evidence-based, but you also need to tap into aspirations and emotions and and, uh, imagery. And so we set up, we developed something called uh, emo-demo, emotional demonstrations. And we would have things like we would dissolve some junk food that was easily available in a rural community in Indonesia, in, in Java. We would dissolve the junk food in water and pass the cup around, and you could see this awful smell, this horrible oily patch. And it would, it would generate revulsion, actually, uh, around that. And that was very powerful. And you know, we did that with the blessing and, uh, of the government and the leadership of the government. And now the government really like this model, and they're rolling it out across the whole of Java. So again, you, you have to work with government because governments set the standards. They can scale very quickly. If they like something, they can make it. You know, again, in in India, we work very closely with the Indian government on fortifying uh, edible oil. Everyone cooks with edible oil in India, but it's not fortified with vitamin D and vitamin A. So we've been working with the government and lots of other industry partners to get legislation passed to fortify edible oil. And it's now passed, November, December of last year. That's that's hundreds of millions of people getting access to uh, nutritious food. And we work also with governments in Europe and North America who are, who are essentially the, the donor governments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we work with them to help them shape their offerings and their, uh, their, their investment to make sure that their investment is having the biggest impact it possibly could. Um, so we try to bring all of those groups together. We started out as a fortification uh, organization 20 years ago, but now... Fortification is maybe a fifth of what we do, and the rest of it is how do we get whole,
0: nutritious food to people and low incomes at affordable prices. Great, great. Are you feeling optimistic about everything going forward? You mentioned a little bit of optimism, but let's uh, brass tacks if we're looking at 2030, just 10 years from now, nine years from now.
1: You know, until COVID, I was uh, the numbers for stunting were going down steadily. They were going down with two or three million kids a year. That's, 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 that's enormous. It's not as fast as I wanted it to be, but it's enormous. Two or three million a year. Now we've done some work we're working with, uh, IFPRI and Johns Hopkins University and a bunch of other researchers at the World Bank to show that if we don't act, COVID is going to set that back uh, quite significantly. Um, not, not the, not the infection itself, but the disruption caused by the uh, mitigation effects so so you know that's that's what that's a dark cloud on the other hand, I think the last year has shown us that what was the un, what was the unthinkable has become the thinkable what was the undoable has become the doable you know trillions of dollars have been moved uh, quickly to support families and and vulnerable uh, individuals, you know, the World Bank tells us that the number of people covered by social protection programs worldwide—these are cash transfer programs or food transfer programs—it was six hundred million before COVID. It's two billion now covered. Um, we we've got vaccines that normally take eight to ten years to be developed developed in eight to ten months. So, you know, necessity really is the mother of invention, and I think. All sorts of opportunities have been generated that we in the food and nutrition community have to be imaginative enough and brave enough to seize. So, two billion people are now covered by social protection programs. What are they doing for nutritious food production and consumption? Not much. They could be doing a lot. Um, So, you know, that's just an example. Um, I, I get very tired, really, of the pessimists in, in the food and nutrition community who say, oh, great, now all the resources are going to be sucked up by COVID-19. My response is no. Make food and nutrition uh, a default part of the package for COVID-19. Then you begin to tap in. The evidence suggests that it should be. You know, Until everybody gets the vaccine, uh, Alberto, I think good nutrition is their next best solution.
0: When you're when you're saying these words and I'm nodding in agreement, but when you say these words and you're and the person on the other end of the table is a, is a policymaker, a government official, are they nodding in agreement as well or are they nodding in sort of hmm, not quite sure?
1: Change takes time. you know we don't have a lot of time. So we we're, we're working on the evidence front, the left brain, we're working on the right brain front uh and we'll you know we're just relentless and you have to be relentless if you want to get anything to be changed in this world so yes you find the champions you find you find the the policy champions and you use them to leverage more change and more change and more change you find the pullmans of this world in the business sector and you find them in the government sector and you you just relentlessly steam on ahead all the way all the
0: time backed by the evidence that will support you Speaking of evidence, where can we go for uh, to access your research or the best research uh, that you recommend for, for anybody who's interested in uh, exploring this particular thematic area in more depth? Well, you know, the game website, I would say this, wouldn't I, but the game website
1: has a number of really fantastic uh, discussion papers and working papers on it. Um, I spend a lot of time, I used to work at an organization called IFPRI, International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. We are publishing a whole series of things on a, a website. There's a great website called Nutrition Connect, which has a lot of fantastic resources. And, you know, watch out for the Standing Together for Nutrition Coalition, who are publishing. We published something in The Lancet, which is the, one of the top medical journals in, in July of this year. And we're publishing something in Nature Food, hopefully in March of this year. What's your website address? www Gainhealth.org. G-A-I-N-H-E-A-L-T-H dot org. Gainhealth.org. And nutritionconnect.org is also a very good website.
0: Okay. And um before we wrap up, I always like to ask my guests for one key takeaway that they'd love for our listeners to keep in mind after the after the end of the uh the podcast episode. What would that be from you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in you know taking action. So um, you know, don't think don't think too hard before you do something. Um, individuals can act to change the food system just by the, the, the choices you make in the supermarket or in the in the corner store, or whether to go to a supermarket or go to a corner store, whether to recycle, whether to uh, whether to eat that that um, onion that's lurking at the back of the refrigerator or throw it away. So individuals can make dis- dis- differences. If, you, if you're if you on a school board, you can pressure your school into, hu- into serving healthier uh, school meals. If you're uh, working in a hospital, you can put pressure on your administration. If you're working, if you know your local MP, or even if you don't know your local MP, uh, sign a petition. You can, individuals can make a big difference. Uh, you don't have to be an expert to make a difference. But the biggest difference, I think, comes when people act together in concert. So, so join a club, join a movement, support a movement, uh, support organisations like Gain, um, put pressure on people. Change only comes if you put if you put pressure on people. The people you're putting pressure on are not they're not bad people. They're just incredibly distracted by uh, 50 people like you clamouring for their attention. You've got, to, you've got to make the best case. You've got to make an evidence-based case, and you've got to have a constructive solution that you can put in front of them and make it easy for them to make the decision. That's, that's what you've got to do. So you, so I'm a big believer in the power of one and the power of many. Uh, so don't despair. Don't give up hope. You can make a difference. And the, and the first thing is,
0: is to make a difference at an individual level. Wonderful message. Wonderful message indeed. You've been listening to Lawrence Haddad, the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, Gain. Lawrence, it really has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today. And to our listeners, thank you as ever for listening, for tuning in, for subscribing, and for your support. Thank you, Lawrence. Really great. Thank you, Alberto, for doing this. And I, you know, I, it's it's podcasts like
1: yours that help make a difference and help amplify. Uh, share and analyze the issues. So very much appreciate what you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.